Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of IBD Heal, a podcast brought to you by Ahikarb Health. I'm your host Shakul and today we're talking all things viruses. This is a recording that I did with Robin Tutor, who's a fellow of the Australian College of Lifestyle Medicine and has an honours degree in public health. So she's very well versed in the science and, and very well qualified to give her thoughts and knowledge on this topic. So uh, the episode that I'm going to share with you was recorded in 2020, uh, around August, September 2020, and it's still very topical today. So what we talked about is how the virus is diagnosed about COVID, how the virus, virus is diagnosed. We talked about the PCR test and, and asymptomatic spread and how dangerous it is or it isn't. Uh, how to get immunity, uh, the fact that unemployment actually increases the death rate, uh, what you can do to stay healthy, and we also discussed public health in detail. So it's a very, very interesting topic. I'm sure you'll uh, enjoy it and learn a lot from what Rob and I discussed. There were a couple of hiccups with the audio. Um, we got some distortion at certain points of the video, so I apologize for that. But without further ado, here is the video. I, I have a public health degree. I, I first class. See that, right? The gold <laughs> one up on the wall. There. That, that's my first class honors degree, right? So, and I really, really enjoy the study of public health. And mm. and public health is 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 absolutely fascinating. It's kind of like the poor cousin of medicine. It's it's not even really within medicine. Mm. Um, but the, the basic premise of, of, of public health is that any intervention, any public health intervention should be, should be tailored to do the maximum benefit and the minimum harm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another video. And today I'm joined by Robin Tudor, who's actually been on our channel before. So some of you have been watching us for a while or remember her from some gut health videos that we did. Uh, but today's topic is a different topic. We're talking about viruses. And uh, welcome again to the channel, Robin. Thanks for having me back on. It's a pleasure to be with your audience. Fantastic. So I'll get Robin to start off by just explaining a little bit about her background and then we're going to go into the topic of this um, this test that we're using at the moment for COVID-19, which is the uh, PCR test. So yeah, Robin, I'll just get you to quickly just introduce yourself. Yeah. Um, okay. So again, my, my name's Robin Shooter and I am a, a certified lifestyle medicine practitioner. So certified by the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Lifestyle medicine for people who are not familiar with it means essentially using all the elements of lifestyle, diet, exercise, you know, sleep hygiene, uh, stress management, and so, and, and, and what you might might call broadly social connection to build and restore people's health. Mm, absolutely. And so, you know, today's topic obviously is uh, something that's, I think, really important that people understand uh, how, you know, to die, like, you know, how we diagnose these conditions, these viral infections. And um, yeah, I think, you know, first of all, just explain to the audience, you know, what is going on at the moment in terms of uh, how COVID-19 is being diagnosed, how viruses in general get diagnosed and how this test works. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a set of really interesting questions. So let's start off with a couple of 
I suppose, technical distinctions about the language that's being thrown around currently. First of all, there there is a uh, a new, you might say, disease entity that's been recognised called COVID-19, which is short for Coronavirus Disease 2019. Now, the, the virus which is uh, believed to be causing this syndrome is a newly discovered coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2. So the virus is SARS-CoV-2, the disease is COVID-19. Now, a lot of people are just talking about coronavirus disease. Well, there are six coronaviruses that we know infect human beings. Well, there's seven now. I mean, there were six previously. Four, four that are endemic to the population. That is, there are four coronaviruses that, that have been with us for somewhere between a couple of decades and, and, and you know, over a century in, in one particular case. And these commonly circulating coronaviruses cause just upper respiratory tract infections infections, colds and flu, flu-like illness, basically. And then, of course, we've got SARS and then MERS being the two coronaviruses that kind of, you know, went global in a big way. And then SARS-CoV-2 is, you know, the the latest uh, epidemic or pandemic coronavirus. So, okay, uh, how do we diagnose viral diseases? Well, traditionally, viral diseases have been diagnosed based on symptoms. So if you have a runny nose, sore or scratchy throat, uh, you've been sneezing, coughing, you're running a fever, you might go to the doctor and mm. and say, look, I'm actually really crook. And mm. the, the doctor, if... Um, that the doctor may or may not actually run a test on you, okay? Very yeah. often the doctor will just say, you've got the flu, go home, drink fluids, I'll give you a, a certificate so you can stay home from work for a couple of days, mm. you'll be fine. Um, mm. What we don't see is people just going along to get tested for a viral illness when they don't <laughs> have any symptoms. I mean, there's no historical precedent for this, okay? Absolutely. So, Right. Let's let's talk about the the, the test it itself. So uh, there are two broad types of tests that are that have been developed in order to uh, attempt to diagnose people who are who are sick with with a respiratory illness to determine whether it's actually COVID-19 caused by SARS-CoV-2 or something mm. else, um, or to determine whether they've had past exposure. So mm-hmm. uh, the the main test that's being used is the PCR test or the polymerase chain reaction test. Mm. And what this is, it's actually a, a DNA um, manufacturing technique. So it was originally discovered or, or the, the test, I'm sorry, was developed by, by Kari Mullis, who actually won mm. the Nobel Prize for, for developing the PCR test. And it's a way of, of amplifying genetic material, DNA initially, uh, which uh-huh. exists in tiny, tiny, tiny amounts. It's a way of actually amplifying that so, so that you can study that, that material much more easily in a, in a laboratory setting. And right. so that's what Mullis developed the, the, the test for. Mullis himself, he, he died just last year, August of last year, just before all of this, you know, started happening. And, mm. and Mullis was absolutely vehement that this PCR test was not to be used to diagnose a viral illness. That is not the intent of this test. It can detect mm. genetic 
material, including genetic material from viruses, but the presence yeah. of viral genetic material does not equate to infection. Yes. It absolutely does not. Mm. Now, in the case of, of, of this uh, of, of SARS-CoV-2, this new newly discovered coronavirus, uh, like all other coronaviruses, it's an RNA virus. So mm -hmm. we, you know, humans, our genetic material is DNA, which is a double strand. You might have seen that the image of DNA, it's like a spiral staircase, right? You've got two strands of genetic material that wrap around, there are bridges between them. Well, mm -hmm. RNA virus actually only have one strand of genetic material and right. so in order to do the PCR test what has to happen is firstly the RNA from from what is presumably viral material has to be sort of like converted you might say into DNA because the mm -hmm. PCR test can mm -hmm. only use DNA it can't use RNA right now there's yeah. actually a 50% yeah. error rate in that conversion mm. process, like converting the RNA to DNA. So right there in the beginning of the test, you've already got potential error. And then mm. what happens is the DNA that you've actually sort of like created or manufactured from the RNA, and, mm. and, and sorry, that that um, genetic material comes from a swab, right? So you get yes. this long, like a yes. long cotton bud and, yes. and the cotton bud yes. is inserted either up the nose or right right at the back of the throat to get a sample of, of um, material. It's basically like a scraping of cells from the surface of, of, of your respiratory membranes. And that's right. what, what is put through right. this test. So, yes. um, so in other words, that sample can be contaminated with your own human DNA, and then there's viral RNA. So they've got to, first of all, copy out the RNA to make it DNA, high error rate. And mm. then once you've got that sample of DNA, you then put it through repetitive cycles of heating and cooling. And so every time you do that, you basically double the genetic material. Okay, so every cycle of heating and cooling results in a doubling of genetic material. And uh -huh. at a certain point, you've got enough of this genetic material where you can, you know, run some sequencing on it. You can basically see whether uh, whether that viral, uh, sorry, whether that genetic material is from a virus, uh, is from a particular virus, like an influenza uh -huh. virus or coronavirus or whatever have you. Right. But the other thing to bear right. in mind is that the, the, the PCR test for, for SARS-CoV-2 is actually mm. only, if you like, looking for two, uh, two pieces of genetic material out of a total of 10. So it's looking for two specific sequences of genetic material, but mm -hmm. the, the whole virus has, well, at least 10. So it's only looking right. for, for certain right. fragments of that mm -hmm. virus, okay? okay. Um, a lot of people assume that the test is either negative or positive. The material is either there or it's not. Um, and if it was there, then, you know, most people assume that if it's there, okay, you've got the virus, therefore you're infected. If it's not there, you don't have the virus, therefore you're not. It doesn't work that way. Mm. The, 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 the test is rated as either positive or negative based on the, the number of cycles uh, of this heating and cooling process that the genetic material has been put through, 
Okay. Yeah. And this is All what's right. called the cycle threshold. So there out of out of the uh, I think it's about twenty odd uh, PCR tests that have been approved for use in Australia. And mm-hmm. the cycle threshold is uh, generally like 35 to 40. So if after 35 to 40 sequences of heating and cooling, this particular genetic sequence that they're looking for kind of like shows up, then that mm-hmm. person is said to have a positive result. Right. Um, right. However, if you look at the literature on on what should be classed as a, as, as a positive in PCR testing, there's general uh, agreement that that's too high of a cycle threshold. Like you shouldn't be calling that a positive. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you if you carry out enough of these heating and cooling cycles, you can pretty much find that genetic material wherever you're looking. Okay, so that's the big limitation. So it, it look it, it's well established among uh, among virologists that that the presence of this genetic material does not equate to infection. So it wasn't just Kari Mullis who developed mm. the test who who's saying this. And I mean, um, I'll just switch over to a screen share for for a moment, and I will show you a couple of of, of sample reports from the literature. Yep. So all right, here's here's a here's a sample. Uh, did, so um, uh, actually, we'll, we'll go back to, to this sentence. A, a direct role of certain viruses in the pathogenesis, meaning like the development of disease, of a specific respiratory illness is not possible to establish on clinical grounds, which is further complicated when multiple respiratory viruses are detected simultaneously in the same specimen. Mm. This is really important because, you know, we're, we're, we're breathing in bacteria and viruses. We're absolutely surrounded by by all sorts of, of you know, microbes and then non-microbes, viruses are technically not living. Mm. And so, you know, that single sample, that single, single swab that's taken could contain genetic material from any number of, of, of pathogens. So if the person has symptoms, it's not possible to tell if you isolate one particular organism that that organism is the cause of the symptoms that they're experiencing. But mm-hmm. the next sentence is really, really important. Detecting viral genomes, so the genetic genetic material of viruses, in respiratory secretions, basically, you know, snot and mucus, does mm-hmm. not necessarily correlate with viral replication, which means that you might find the the virus's genetic material there but that doesn't mean that the virus is actually replicating or reproducing and if it ain't reproducing it ain't causing an infection that that particular virus anyway it may reflect latency that is the person has has got a virus on board and it's working on making them sick or prolonged shedding unrelated to the current symptoms that is they might have encountered that virus their immune system has actually dealt with it Mm. but they're still going to show up with this genetic material for some time afterward. Therefore, approaches based on the detection of viable viral progeny, that is viruses that are capable of of replicating, Hmm. all markers of active viral replication should be used in studies of pathogenesis of respiratory viruses. Well, we're not seeing that with this particular test. Now, um, how would you determine viable viral progeny? Well, to do that, what you actually do is to, what you have to do is to take those samples of, of, of genetic 
viral genetic material that you found in, you know, on, on the swab. And then you carry out what are called viral culture studies, where you take that genetic material and you kind of like inject it into cultures that are growing like in a petri dish. And you see whether the cells that you've injected that viral material into show the classic signs of viral infection. Mm. Okay. Now, these viral culture studies, very, very few of them have been done. And the the WHO actually acknowledges that. Uh, here we go. So here's, um, sorry, I should just show you where this is, where this is coming from. So um, this is a mm. textbook called Respiratory Viral Infections. That's where I got that quote from. Now, if we have a look at, at this one, this, this is actually from the WHO's website. Oh, yes. And here's, here's Here's the quote that I want to I want to highlight here. Detection of viral RNA does not necessarily mean that a person is infectious mm. and able to transmit the virus to another person. Studies using viral culture of patient samples to assess the presence of infectious SARS-CoV-2 are currently limited. Mm. And then they go on to describe there there have been a couple of cases. So they got one viable virus from from an asymptomatic case. Mm. Um, but again, there's there's no you know there's no proof that that asymptomatic case actually transmitted it to anybody else, which is really critical. Uh, but once again, you know the, these viral culture studies are extremely limited, mm. and in a um, um, if you have a look at some of the the meta analyses and so forth, you you, you can you can see that um oh sorry yeah here we go so this is actually a um basically a like an evidence review of the transmission of coronavirus of the, the SARS-CoV-2 while pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic right. once again I mean right. right here in the paper it says the detection of SARS-CoV-2 RNA in pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic persons does not prove that they can transmit the virus to others and when you look at the epidemiological reports that that, they, that they've done where they've actually found pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic people mm. um, they actually haven't been able to show that, that these people, uh, particularly the asymptomatics, transmitted it to anyone at all. Mm. So these these are epidemiological reports where they're doing essentially um, contact tracing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, nada, just it's not it's not happening. There mm. was a, a recent study from from China, which uh, so th this is the summary table here. The total numbers of people involved: three thousand four hundred and uh, and 10 close contacts of 391 indexed cases. Now, what this means, like the index case is the person who's sick and the 3,410 close contacts are, you know, people who lived with that person, worked with them, whatever, okay? Um, and so what, what they found in this very briefly is that of the asymptomatic people of which there were, if my memory serves me correctly, 351, there was uh, one, one case of, of secondary infection and even that sort of wasn't guaranteed the, that they got sick from being in contact with this asymptomatic 
person. Sorry, let me just go back there. Um, so, yeah, you've got like asymptomatic people. You've got uh, um, one index case. Oh, sorry, that wasn't what I was looking for. Ah, uh, there's a table here. I'll, I'll share these with you if you like. You can put yeah. them in the, in the show notes. So in any case, what, what they found is that there there's a vanishingly small risk of, of people who, you know, are found to have the virus on a PCR test but don't have any symptoms hmm. actually passing it on to somebody else and, and that's that's essentially because the presence of that of, of that virus uh, in in a you know in a person's respiratory tract secretions does not mean that they're either infected or infectious. Hmm. Okay, does that uh, does that make sense? Um, do you want to go back over any of that to make it clearer, or are we could fully makes sense to me. Um, I guess maybe we we should try and kind of uh, work this out and. In, in, you know, less formal kind of connotation, you know, say, for example, let, let me just kind of explain this to you. Maybe, you know, in the past, I've been exposed to a lot of viruses. I've had virus viral infections. Yeah. I mean, you know, before I went plant-based, I used to get sick way more often. And maybe it's something we can talk about as well. Um, and uh, so, I mean, my experience of going to the doctor was look down your throat, take your temperature, I've never had a test for viral infection in my life. Yep. Yep. Okay. And I said, oh, you probably got a virus. Just go home. There's no medication we can give you anyway to deal with the virus. And, yep. uh, you know, just wait it out. You know, take a few days off work. You know, stay at home. Yep. Um, and so I guess the way I can kind of explain that is, you know, in the past, let's talk about different viruses that we've been exposed to and had in the past. If you were sick, you were told you need to stay home. If you're not yes. sick, no one ever thought that mm. you were a potential risk to their health. 100%. Right? So we're you're in the workplace. On. We were out in, in the general population, yep. cafes, bars, stadiums, all sorts of places. Um, yep. You know, someone starts coughing, you kind of get away. You stay away from them. Yeah, but if no and one's coughing, them and go. Do you know you what, go, dude? You ought to stay home and stop like spreading your infectious materials yeah, yeah. over everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but if you know, if someone doesn't have a temperature, they're not coughing and you know splattering everywhere. Um, yep. You'd never even think twice to think that they're gonna cause you any harm. Mm. And I think, yes, I, I think. What that study kind of shows is that if you're not showing any symptoms of disease, then mm. there's almost impossible chance that you're going to pass that off. Yes. And you know, in, there, in there is this, a slight, latest, slight I mean, yeah. what is the risk that you could? I yeah, mean, you know well, the risk. You've, you've, you've again, that. I mean, um, based, based on now, uh, I think it was about a month ago when uh, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhover, who's the one of the sort of um, she's on the, uh, in in the WHO, yeah. she is uh, what's her role? Lead technical. Uh, yeah, support, I think she's like the I face. Think, she's she's on all the interviews and things. Like yeah. yeah, 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 like long brown hair. Um, yeah. very 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 smart woman with a long mm. background in public health, and she actually mm. said that that you know based on the the very detailed contact tracing reports that had been submitted to the WHO, mm. uh, asymptomatic transmission was uh, uh, you know, unlikely to be a significant driver 
Mm. Um, of 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 this pandemic, and yeah. that's been confirmed in several studies. I've I've shown you, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the screen several of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was uh, there. There was all sorts of brouhaha after that, and yeah. she was interviewed yeah. the following day and said, "Look, you know, let me be clear. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm not saying it never happens, but I am saying that that we have very little evidence that it's happening to any significant degree, and that makes mm. perfect sense. Absolutely. And this this latest this this um." study from China that I showed you basically indicates that the degree of severity of symptoms correlates with the infectiousness. So like with the likelihood that a person who who is infected and sick is going to Mm. spread it around to other people. And the hallmark symptom that that indicated the likelihood of transmitting it onward was expectoration. So if you are like coughing or herking up viral, like, you know, because that's the way viruses work. They, mm. uh, your yeah. body, your body's response to viral infection is that your T cells, immune mm. part of the immune system, mm. detects virus infected cells and it kills them. Yes. Okay, and yes. those cells basically explode and they they disgorge their contents into the respiratory tract. And that, by the way, is how you can detect viral particles, right? Well, that's yes. one of the ways that you yes. can test positive. Yes. It's because cells yes. that have actually been knocked off by the immune system mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, almost like vomited their, their contents into the respiratory tract. Mm. Those contents yes. include little fragments of, of killed virus that have been killed by, yeah. by the immune system's yes. response to this. So if what so you're that, saying is what right, what you're saying is that the body's immune or defense system might have already destroyed that viral um, infected cell and you may have gained defo- like long-term defense or immunity against that virus and then you're yes. going to get this test and you're going to be positive and they think you're infected or in fact yes. you've actually healed yourself You've from the inf- dealt with it. Yeah. And there's clear evidence that that people who are fully recovered can continue to shed the virus mm. for for weeks and 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 in in a very small number of or small percentage of cases maybe even months. Mm. Uh, again because you know the, the these viral particles continue to be to be shed from from cells that have been dealt with by by this immune response. So but on the other hand if if you're if you're sick you're actively infectious um uh sorry to clarify this i I should point out that viruses are what's called an intracellular pathogen they can only make you sick if they get into your cell they hijack your dna your genetic material and they use your genetic material to make copies of themselves Mm -hmm. then those copies kind of you know spew out of out of the cell and then they're kind of let loose in your body to go and infect other cells and we know that the way that that this particular coronavirus gains access to the cell is is through docking with with ace 2 the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 uh which is supposed to respond to a hormone that we make ourselves Mm. um but the coronavirus has learned how to sort of you know sneak in by by binding to that receptor okay right, right, but right. um yeah so, so if, if you're sick and you're coughing all over people what what you're coughing is actually um like virus infectious virus as opposed to little fragments little snippets mm. of dead virus that mm. actually got killed by your body's own immune response to the fact that it's it's been subjected to viral infection
Yeah, that that and that that kind of backs up the whole idea where we've always thought that you're only going to get infected by someone who's actually sick and showing symptoms. Whereas if you're not sick and showing symptoms, you're never going to worry about that person. You know. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's there there still remains the possibility of, of what's uh, so certainly a pre-symptomatic spread, right? So so if a if a person is kind of brewing an illness mm. and there and the virus is replicating in them day by day, then then yes, there's still a possibility of spread. But but mm. again, remember that. Um, just just casual contact with them, uh, walking past them in the street while you're walking their dog and you're and they're walking their dog. There, there's no way you're going to cop a sufficient what's called viral load mm. from from just walking past a person, you know, either in the shops or in a supermarket mm. or whatever, mm. um, for, for you to to actually get enough of that virus to become sick. Yeah. Um, when yeah. you look at what is defined as a contact, so for the purpose of of, of contact tracing. Mm -hmm. What is defined as a contact is someone who has been very close to you for for at least 15 minutes. Right. Right. So, again, this is not casual contact. This no. is not you walking no. past someone at the shops. Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. not you walking past someone who just happens to be eating on a park, sitting on a park bench eating their lunch. There's no way that you can get sick from that kind of contact. Mm. And, in fact, again, in this Chinese study from the Annals of Internal Medicine that I showed you before, that the primary setting... So, so the majority of, of cases where an infected person, a person who was sick, kind of passed it on to, to somebody else was someone in their own household, someone that they lived with, someone that they shared the same bed with, ate meals with, you know, sat down on the sofa and watched TV with, that sort of thing, okay? Mm -hmm. yep. It's not casual contact. You do not need to be petrified. That's great. Is going to make you sick. In mm. fact, even, even if they did cough on you it's unlikely that that would infect you it's close sustained contact yeah that that, that yeah. is capable of, of transmitting enough of a viral load for you to actually get sick yeah and i i yeah. personally think that it is extremely worrying that that we're now uh, causing particularly children especially kids in school mm. are, are being essentially told that everyone around them is is a potential vector of infection and and you shouldn't hug your friend yeah. and like, don't sit too yeah. it's really really worrying mm. humans need close physical contact we need it for our mental health and quite frankly we need it for our immune function as well Absolutely. We, we in in the same way that our gut microbiota very uh benefit from a, an extremely varied plant-based diet mm. our microbiota in the gut on the skin in the respiratory membranes benefit enormously from diversity, from mm. coming in contact with a wide variety of bacteria, fungi, you know, viruses, all all sorts of, of microscopic yeah. life and non-life forms. Absolutely. Non -life forms I mean, even viruses. for babies, you know, in the first few um, months of their life, a lot of their microbiome comes from, you know, their parents. And, you know, like being in Absolutely. contact with parents, saliva of the parents, you know, like, Hand yeah, in the mouth. Bacteria on the yeah. mother's on the mother's breast. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, and like you might feed them and you might you might finish off that spoon and feed them again. You know, like that's what we do. That's what we do. And that's and, yeah, and like totally. part of our microbiomes in our mouth. So, you know, 
passing that on. Like if, if, if you if you look at how women in traditional societies who don't have blenders, how yeah. do they prepare baby food for their kids? They chewed it up yes. and then they kind of for want of a better word, spat it into their baby's mouths. Dogs do the same thing, right? So a mother dog will will eat a meal and then she'll regurgitate it for her babies. Wolves yeah. do the same thing. They go they they go on hunt. They bring down an animal. Mm. They eat it. They go back to to the members of the wolf pack who had to stay home and they regurgitate it. So I know people go, ooh, that's gross. Well, that's the way nature works. It's kind of gross. Yeah, birds do it all the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, like it's it's just. Yeah, I think we're so far actually pushed away from from our natural environment now, and we're so scared of nature and you know, like being yeah. involved. And you know, obviously, um, and now people are scared of each other, and this worst. is this is horrifying. This is awful. Mm. This is it's psychologically devastating, but it but it but it's physically threatening as well. Yes. People people's yes. stress hormone levels go up dramatically if they don't have physical contact with other people. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why um why people in nursing homes benefit from having like a therapy dog come in mm. is that when you when you pat a dog your own blood pressure goes down mm. well it turns out that when you hug a person your blood pressure goes down too why does it go down because your stress hormone levels are affected by that physical contact mm. and now people are being told don't touch don't like it makes total sense to not do that with a person who is sick. And yeah. and look, I'll grant because you know obviously a lot of your audience are people who who are dealing with an autoimmune disease. Some of them might be on medications. Uh, they might be immunosuppressed. Hmm. So I'll grant you in a circumstance like that, if you feel yourself to to be. Uh, to be vulnerable at, at higher risk, by all means, you you wrap yourself up in a bubble and make sure that that you kind of vet the contact that you're having with mm. other people. I'm totally down with that. That's that's fine. Mm. Elderly people, frail pe people who are on chemotherapy, although mm -hmm. I must say, people who are you know, immunosuppressed are actually turning out to to have a less serious course of illness with this particular disease mm. because of this phenomenon known as antibody dependent enhancement, whereby um, an overly exuberant immune response yeah. to the yeah. virus can yeah. actually cause yeah. lung damage. Right, but, mm. but but I would still say, if you have very great concerns because of your your current mm state of physical health and you still want to sort of you know sequester yourself to some degree i'm i'm all for it i'm not i'm not going to tell you to you know go to a party and hug 15 total strangers <laughs> not at all i'm saying for for people who are currently healthy and vibrant and you know eating well and getting their sleep and exercising regularly and mm. and uh and don't have any any reason to be concerned about their health like their normal weight and all the rest of it mm. the the idea that you should be terrified of contact with other people makes no sense at all yeah. it just makes no sense yeah. and and you know as you said before never never before have we ever quarantined the healthy. healthy. This is healthy. this this is not how you handle infectious disease. No. The the only no. way out of of a an epidemic of, of of respiratory disease, like a respiratory tract infection, is through the gaining of herd immunity. Mm -hmm. Now the prospect of gaining herd immunity with a vaccine is 
Number one, even if a, a successful vaccine that, that was safe was developed, it is several years off. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. Mm -hmm. All of the talk about we're going to have it by, you know, the US election or we're going to have it by next year. Yeah, not if you speak to the people who are involved in vaccine development. Mm. Um, number mm. two, the, uh, the vaccine candidates that, that, are, that are sort of proceeding the fastest through the pipeline right now, uh, the, the Oxford vaccine, which is being developed by AstraZeneca, did not in fact prevent transmission of the virus. Mm. So it did um, cause you know, slightly less severe symptoms in mm. the monkeys mm. that were given the vaccine. However, it didn't actually prevent them from being infectious or, or, or passing the virus on. So so clearly, there's no way of getting herd immunity from that vaccine. Mm. So how do we get herd immunity? The way we've always done it. Um, the virus passes from person to person to person, and uh, eventually it just runs out of, out of susceptible people to infect. Mm. Now, the good thing is that because there is substantial uh, what's called cross immunity, so, uh, so because T cells, this sort of very important cell type in the immune system, because around 40 to 60% of the population already have T cells that have encountered previous coronaviruses mm -hmm. and have successfully, you know, overcome them, mm -hmm. uh, they, can they can recognize and respond to what are called epitopes, like certain segments of genetic material on SARS-CoV-2, mm -hmm. and they can headed okay. off at the pass without without the person getting sick, without them even developing antibodies mm. against it. Mm. So that's, you know, somewhere between 40 and 60% of the population who are uh, protected, they're, they're actually not susceptible. Mm -hmm. And that means that, that in order to gain herd immunity, we may only need somewhere around 10 to 20% of the population to actually become infected and, and to recover. And what uh, Dr. David Katz and, and many others have been saying from very early on in the piece is what we should be doing is we should be risk stratifying. Mm -hmm. So we take people who are at most risk of a bad outcome, we already know who they are Absolutely. and we've known since the Absolutely. first case started first case series came out of wuhan mm -hmm. they're the elderly yep. they're the people with heart yep. disease diabetes people undergoing treatment for cancer although that sort of that came out of the original case series now no one's quite sure about that but let, let's just throw them in for good measure mm -hmm. um and and people with high blood pressure mm -hmm. so we you know sequester them we we keep the nursing homes really protected uh, we, you know, anyone who's in those categories, stay home. Um, they should be being sent food and yeah. in-home care, mm -hmm. so so that they they can just sit there and wait it out. Mm -hmm. And then everyone else who is at very low risk, like vanishingly small risk of death and a very low risk of serious outcomes, off you go. Yep. Go to school. Go to work. They're not going to overwhelm the healthcare system. Now, will some people get sick? Sure, because that happens with every virus. And people are still getting young sick now. Die, <laughs> yeah, young people die of the flu. Even children die of the flu. Mm. Far fewer young people and children are dying of, of SARS-CoV-2 infection than die of influenza. That's true. Right. In the US last year, I believe they had 114 children aged under 18 who died of influenza. Mm -hmm. They're nowhere near that mm. with, with, with COVID-19, with that age group. So, right. um, so unfortunately, it is, it is a fact that some people will get sick 
a small percentage of them will will die every death is sad every every death like it is it's a terrible terrible thing mm. but it mm. is not possible to just hide in our basement and hope this virus will go away mm. virus is going to do mm. what viruses do and that is they move through the population until they've reached a point where where they can't go any further because no one else is susceptible to them that's it that's it completely agree and i think you know i mean we're not politicians or public health officials or anything like that but it just sounds like the common sense thing to do and it seems like the countries that have done that the worst have done the opposite where they started putting infected people into the nursing homes and exposing the elderly and you know places like new york and um melbourne's another example yes. and unfortunately sweden did a very poor job of managing they did that, that. Too. and they yeah. they've accepted that they've yeah. accepted that that was their biggest mistake yes. that they did not uh protect the nursing homes well enough mm -hmm. and in sweden they happen to have very very large nursing homes so you know hundreds of old you know um immuno uh, immunosenescent people all in the same facility so mm. once one gets it it's just like it's just like wildfire yeah. but you know there yeah. there are um plenty of case reports in the medical literature that that show that um the previous coronaviruses the the you know the ones that just circulate in the general population if they get hold of of a, an elderly person in a nursing home they can rip right through like wildfire mm. and uh there, there was a case in, in 2003 at the very tail end of the, the SARS epidemic, which yeah. uh, it was in a, a, a nursing home in British Columbia. Um, and all these elderly people started getting sick. They were getting pneumonia. There was a high death rate. And the PCR testing originally indicated the, that it was SARS. And everyone had a freak out because they thought that the, you know, they're thinking, how did the SARS virus get to a nursing home in British Columbia? Mm. It turned out that, that that PCR test was actually inaccurate. And it was one of the four commonly circulating coronaviruses, the OC43 strain, mm. which in everybody else just causes, you know, either nothing at all or like common cold symptoms yeah. but you get it in an elderly population there was an eight percent mortality rate right none of the um the staff got infected none of the staff died eight percent mortality in the elderly people mm. so we know just how much harm yeah. a coronavirus can yeah. do even a common garden variety one that kids at school are getting all the time mm. we know how much harm it can do yeah. in an elderly susceptible population and they absolutely need to be adequately protected we've done a terrible job of that in australia mm -hmm. you know um i think it's around 50 percent of our deaths have occurred in nursing homes mm -hmm. that's that's kind of on the higher end if you look at the numbers internationally. Yeah. So we clearly have yeah. not been protecting the elderly the way we should have, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. what's largely accounting for for our, our higher death rate. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, the, the approach that, that has been taken in this country and also in New Zealand is extremely counterproductive when it comes to the development of a robust uh, herd immunity, which Absolutely. is the only way to stop a, a respiratory pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, from where I'm sitting, there don't seem to be any solutions. You know, do you just want to keep the population locked down forever? What happens when you open your borders? What happens when you let people from... Yeah. And, the, you know, the, the thing to bear in mind 
is that the lockdowns are killing people. Mm. They're killing people in a number of ways. They're killing people in very immediate ways. For instance, there there has been uh, noted in, in countries all over the world that there's a, a substantial decrease in the numbers of people fronting up to hospital with symptoms of a heart attack or a stroke. So what are we to conclude from that? Has, has you know, SARS-CoV-2 cured heart attack? Yeah, I don't think so. What's happening is people who are having heart attack symptoms are staying home. Yeah. They're staying home either because, A, they don't want to burden the healthcare system because they've been told to flatten the curve, or, B, they're afraid that if they go to hospital, they'll actually get the virus. And so they're having heart attacks and they're either suffering heart damage that that could have been prevented if they'd presented to hospital early or they're actually dying at home Mm. of a heart attack. If they had gone to hospital and received appropriate treatment, they could have survived. The same with strokes. And I've also heard of or read a number of case reports where people have died of diabetic coma. So this is where an insulin-dependent diabetic, usually a type 1, um, sort of injects too much insulin, their blood sugar level, uh, you know, drops dramatically, and then they go unconscious. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, a a, a diabetic gets to know the symptoms of a hypo, Mm -hmm. and you know, they, they know to seek medical attention. But mm. but there have been a number of cases, as I say, where, where people, where diabetics have not sought medical attention and they've died mm-hmm. of a completely preventable situation. So they, they're your immediate deaths. And then the longer-term deaths relate to things like, you know, undiagnosed cancers. Um, so, so people, you know, not turning up to, to have, have suspicious symptoms checked out mm-hmm. and therefore not being diagnosed yeah. at an earlier stage when treatment may be more successful, depends mm-hmm. on the cancer type, but it may be. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. you, you've got the, uh, the what, what are called deaths of despair. Mm. So when you effectively destroy uh, a society's economy, so you you cause small businesses and even medium-sized businesses to fail and even airlines mm-hmm. to be laying off staff left, right and centre. Mm-hmm. When you um, cause people to become unemployed, what, what happens is you actually increase the death rate. Now, it's not immediate. It's not like people dropping dead of heart attacks that could have been prevented. Mm-hmm. But this death rate is measured mm-hmm. in the months to years after uh, after the event which caused you know the the economic collapse um, yeah. in the US there's, there's very reliable data indicating that for every one percent increase in the unemployment rate there will there will be 37,000 additional deaths additional right. premature deaths right. There was a Productivity Commission report in New Zealand which which estimated the the cost-benefit analysis of just five days, five additional days of lockdown, and found that uh, the risks or, like, the costs outweighed the benefits by a factor of, if my memory serves me correctly, was 68 to 1. 68 times more 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 cost than wow. there was benefit. Wow. It was one additional life saved, but an incredible loss of, 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 of life in terms of, you know, increased suicides mm. uh, as a result of bankruptcies, people developing alcohol problems mm-hmm. or relapsing into addiction. Mm-hmm. It's an absolute nightmare what, what is being done to, mm-hmm. to people presently. Um, it is not evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has never been done before. It wasn't Sweden that was conducting some sort of wild experiment. <laughs> yeah. Sweden was doing what countries have always done before. That's right. Right? Yeah. Um, it's the rest yeah. of the world that's been conducting a uh, an experiment going com- into completely uncharted waters. Hmm. 
And the results that we're seeing are not good. No. Not good. And I mean, experiment is I mean it's, it's fascinating for me because when, when this all first started, the whole terminology was around let's flatten the curve. They were never saying that they were going to save people from dying from the virus. They were saying let's flatten the curve so that we don't overwhelm the hospital system and then the excess deaths that come with overwhelming the hospital system, we want to avoid those. But we don't want to avoid deaths yep. from the virus because we can't do that. And now all of a sudden we can some, somehow magically avoid deaths from the virus? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, it, it's, what, it's what's known as mission creep. Okay, so mm. so the initial mission was, was to flatten the curve, and, and I agree with you. That right, actually yeah. makes some sense. Yeah. Like, you know, try to interrupt the transmission of the virus so that yeah. hospitals can gear up, they can, you know, uh, equip their ICUs, they can make sure that they've got personal protective equipment for the staff, they can yeah. basically get ready for for the onslaught, which, of course, in Australia never happened. Yeah. Our hospital system never looked like being close to being overwhelmed. And, in fact, that healthcare system overwhelm only happened in a very few, very small number of isolated pockets mm. throughout the world. Mm. Um, never happened in Sweden, that's for sure. And that, that was one of the things that they were calculating. Can our healthcare system actually deal with, with, with any overrun? Well, they never had an overrun. Right. Um, so, right. yes, the flatten the curve thing, all right, that's fine. If you actually look at... At, at, at that sort of diagram that everyone's seen of like, here's the curve mm. if we let it run mm. and here's the curve. Yes. If we... It's the same number of deaths from the virus. Exactly. If you calculate the area under the curve, you either get the deaths over and done with quickly or you spread them out over a longer period. That's the what only I always reason thought about to it. flatten the curve is that if the if the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed, then then number one, the people with the infection uh, who do present to hospital may not receive appropriate treatment, and number two, people who have the heart attacks or whatever might not get seen because the hospital is overrun with infected people. Mm. But it, it, as I say, it became apparent very soon in Australia that our healthcare system was not going to be overwhelmed. That's right. So the just justification for flattening the curve disappeared and yeah. then we ended up with this with this bureaucratic mission creep mm. where we went from flattening the curve to now we're going to stop the virus yeah. to, to which i could only yeah. say good luck with that yeah. because that genie was out of the bottle there was already substantial community transmission Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, the, the whole idea of contact tracing at a point where there's substantial community transmission is also ludicrous. Mm. It's like contact tracing is something that in epidemic management you do at a very early stage. So you try to figure out, uh, like, you're basically tracking the virus. That That's mm. the purpose of contact tracing. You do it early. At this stage in the game, it's absolutely pointless. Mm. When there's widespread community transmission, you, you can't, like... If, if you get sick, how are you going to know whether it was Joe or Fred or Marge who gave you the virus, right? You're not because it's because it's moved through through the population. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and I, I don't think it's just that people have forgotten about the whole flattening the curve and the fact that they were never going to stop deaths from the virus ever. You know, they were always going to be. If there was going to be. 5,000 deaths in one country, there was either going to be 5,000 deaths in one month or in five months. And that was... Correct. And it's still going to be That's like that. Exactly if you look at New Zealand, right. where I'm from... I mean, and, and the, the, the only thing that, that can really intervene uh, in that yeah. is, is... And it can't intervene completely. Like, there's no way that you can bring that death rate down to zero, mm. right? Because, again, if you're looking at, at very elderly and very, very sick people... 
Um, e even if you had a, a, a UBU treatment for, for this particular virus, they're actually just going to succumb to the next virus that they encounter, an influenza virus, a different coronavirus. Mm. These, these people are, are just, you know, they're, they're extremely sick. I mean, you know, the, the average, uh, like the average age at death from SARS-CoV-2 is pretty universally in different populations, the average life expectancy. Mm. So people are, on the whole, are losing uh, perhaps a couple of months, at, at, at worst, maybe a year mm. of life. If, honestly, if you look at most calculations, it's a couple of months. Right. Um, right. And... I again, I, I I think we should definitely be putting a lot of uh, a lot of emphasis on developing better treatments for for those who who are elderly and sick. Mm. For you and I mm. and other you know uh, younger people who aren't in those risk groups, mm. what we need to be focusing on is just all the things that people ought to be doing to stay healthy. Eat a, a plant-based diet with an abundance of fruit and vegetables. Get outdoors. Get your vitamin D. Exercise regularly. Get your, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep per night. Mm. Do your stress management. Mm. Ensure that that you have, you know, the amount of social contact that that is that is good for you. Extroverts need more, introverts need less, but everyone needs some. Mm. Um, so do all of those things which we know uh, assist the the operation of the immune system. Bearing in mind that we have both an innate immune system and an acquired immune system. Mm -hmm. So when we were told initially, this is a novel coronavirus and no one has immunity to it, mm -hmm. that's actually wrong. Now, right. we didn't know that it was wrong um, in the sense initially, like no one knew about this cross immunity, this T cell mediated cross immunity from contact with other coronaviruses. Mm. No one knew about that. So that that's fair enough. However, to say that people have no immunity is actually um, it's, it's somewhat of a distortion of how the immune system works mm. because the innate immune system uh, is, is like the first responder to an incoming pathogen. Mm. So the innate immune system just recognises things that don't look quite right and it, and it combats them. Mm. The acquired immune system, which is where your T cells and B cells come in, antibody production, all that sort of thing, that actually takes you know a week or more to really gear up to the point where it can knock off the infection. In the meantime, mm. your innate immune system is, is, is you know working hard to protect you. Mm. And the innate immune system is very, very affected, uh, as is the acquired immune system, but the innate immune system is very affected by your nutritional status, mm. by your stress level, by the amount of sleep that you have or haven't had, mm -hmm. and also by your aerobic fitness. Mm. Okay? So, so, and yet what were people told to do? Their exercise were limited, was limited. They were told to stay home. They, they closed the national parks, for oh, heaven's I sake. I mean, you know, the... The the whole like the, the the transmission of respiratory viruses is is really diminished when you're outdoors mm. for a variety of reasons, particularly when the air is humid. And mm -hmm. when did this virus hit our shores? January, February, middle of summer, high humidity, high air temperatures. Mm. So it's it's kind of like every everything that that should have been done 
to to support public health across the scale, right? So to encourage young, healthy people who had a low risk of serious illness to 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 just like do what they needed to do to support their immune function. Mm. Go outside, get mm. exercise, um, eat healthy, uh, have social eat contact, eat healthy, all that sort of stuff, yeah. and then you know yeah. batten down the hatches on the nursing homes. Mm. Everything that should have been done was not done, and it's almost like the opposite, opposite. of what should have been mm. done was 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 done. Um, and, and look, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I have a public health degree. I, I, I first class, see that, all right, the gold <laughs> one up on the wall. There. That, that's my first class honours degree, right? So, and I really, really enjoy the study of public health. And mm. and public health is 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 absolutely fascinating. It's kind of like the poor cousin of medicine. It's it's not even really within medicine. Mm. Um, but the the basic premise of, of, of public health is that any intervention, any public health intervention, should be should be tailored to do the maximum benefit and the minimum harm, mm. and that means that interventions actually need to be adjusted to to different subpopulations within a population, right? Mm. So, um, and and. and this this present case illustrates that point really really well. We did not have a a tailored and sort of nuanced version hmm. uh, of, of 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 what to do for each different population segment. Hmm. Even though, as I say, we already knew we when knew we this. started seeing yeah. increasing cases, we knew who was susceptible and who wasn't. And we knew so that based on past experience too, right? Experience. Like not just because of this, it's just past experience with these kind of diseases is that they affect the elderly population. Mm. So if you're going to do any kind of yeah, well, well, restrictive kind of movement, it should be on those types of people. Yeah. Yes, that, that's exactly right. Uh, it's it's uh, those who were those who who were very very clearly known to be susceptible from the get go from those early case reports. I mean, we didn't just have the Chinese example; we also had Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and and we saw the same thing happening there. It was the elderly. It was people with, with obesity and, and diabetes and heart disease. It was very, very sick people, yeah. very old, sick people who were getting extremely ill with this and who were dying. So yeah. we knew enough to to uh, have a more intelligent and targeted public health approach than, than we did. Yeah. But now uh, it's it's extricating ourselves from from this corner that we've backed ourselves into uh, you know when i say us like as a as a nation is is pretty difficult because you've got a whole lot of people who are just terrified of, of, mm. of going outdoors and parents who are too scared to send their kids to school and people who are too scared to go back to work and yeah oh my goodness you know how do you how do you sort of reassure people no no, no it's okay it's fine you you can you can go back to, to yeah. normal life. And, and, yeah, you know, protect granny by all means. I, my, my mother's 88, mm. right? I'm, I'm, I am aware that elderly and frail people need mm. to be protected. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that your kid can't go to school if your kid doesn't have any contact with granny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think the elderly want to spend their last few months or last year or so of their life stuck in their house either you know um yeah you know okay you've extended you've, you've survived exactly and you've stayed alive but what have you done 
Yeah, you haven't seen your family. Well, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, a lot of elderly people are probably dying. I mean, just anecdotally, I've heard from a number of people that that their elderly relatives have basically given up. Like, they don't want to only see their grandkids by by Zoom. And, you know, to to be honest, if I, I... I really, I really think that people should be given the choice, right? Mm-hmm. If I were 95 and someone said to me, um, you've got two choices, right? You either don't see your grandkids and you have no contact with anyone other than the relative stranger who, who works in the nursing home yeah. or whatever other facility yeah. you're in. Yeah. Um, and if you do that, you'll live maybe an extra month because you're 95 and you're old anyway, yeah. versus, yeah, your grandkids could come visit you, um, you can you can go down to the to the shops and you know have a coffee with a friend or whatever, but you might get this virus and you might get sick and die, and that might shave a month or two months or even six months off your life. I think I would probably say I'll stuff it. I'll go and have a coffee with my friend. I actually don't drink coffee, but you know, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I'm a herbal. Ne- yeah, neither do I. Let's do it. Friend, and I'll hug my grandkid. Thanks all the same, because the yeah. idea of living in a bubble for the last six months of my life doesn't greatly appeal to me. No. There are some. There are worse things than death, and 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 loneliness and yes. social isolation. Yeah are quite literally worse than death, or many people judge them to be. And frankly, each person is an expert on their own experience. So if you said to me, I'd rather be dead than than lonely and isolated, I think that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. And you should be given the choice as to how you live your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, my biggest reflection, I think we'll probably end the conversation here. Um, it was very insightful. And thank you for going through the research. Um, I think my biggest reflection on this, and I've been locked down for a long time, <laughs> okay? So I've had a lot of time to reflect on this. Um, I think I've probably been in lockdown since March, and I only had like a few weeks where it has, but it's been locked down the whole time, like just been different levels of it, right? Um, yeah. And um, my biggest reflection is that neither my life or any life of the members of my family is worth more then your freedom. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't want to be selfish enough to say that because I want to survive this, you have to stay in your house and wear your mask and do all that kind of stuff. Just so I am, you know, my minimal risk of dying is evaded. Um, yeah. And I think that was my biggest reflection. I was like, this is no way to live. <laughs> you know, I can't see, like, you know, we've just had a baby. My parents can't come and see him. You know, they're in New Zealand. We're here. You know, this is not, this is not human kind of compassion. This is, this is not, yeah, I mean, that's not the kind of world I, I, I personally, I mean, it is, people watching this may be different. This is not the world I want to live I, in. I'm going to put that on the record. I, yeah. Not the world I, I, I fully live. agree. I I mentioned that my mum is 88. She lives in Sydney. I I live on the Gold Coast now. I have been able to see her exactly once since March. Now, normally I fly down to Sydney every two weeks. I have clients there. I stay with my mum. I help her out with things. There's only been one trip that I could make, like that brief period of time when the border was open and I could go down there mm. um my my mom is you know her my stepfather just died in april my mom's second husband yeah. uh, she is very lonely 
all of the things that she normally does, you know, little bus trips where they get older people on a bus, they take them to gardens and, you know, museums and that sort of thing, all that's cancelled. Mm -hmm. She can't do any of that. Um, her, you know, Probus Club meetings, all that sort of garden club, cancelled. So there's my 88-year-old mum stuck at home um, without me to stay with her and, and visit her without any of the contact that, that, that she has with other people who, who she's got friendly with. Mm. So will, will she live any longer as a, as a consequence of, of, you know, being protected from the virus? It's pretty hard to say because I think she is at least as likely to die prematurely of loneliness mm. as she would be to die yeah. prematurely of, 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 of getting this virus. Absolutely. Right? I, I so, can't disagree with you on that, you know. Um, and, yeah, I think I think people really need to reflect on, on this and, and, yeah. and really think about what kind of world we want to live in. And, you know, yes. yes, do we want to let fear drive our lives or do we, you know, like if we let fear drive our lives, let's not get in the car to go and travel. It's not, you know, because you have a risk of dying in that too. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just my personal. We, we do, I, I agree we need to have a really good hard think about how we define selfishness versus compassion mm-hmm. and the the kind the kind of lives that we want to live because mm. this has this whole episode has put people uh, really out of out of balance with themselves mm. and with their friends and loved ones and with total strangers uh it's been incredibly destructive to everything that is that 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 really makes us human Mm. absolutely absolutely yeah all right well you know guys i think it was really important for me to get robin on here because robin has been someone who's been very actively talking about this a lot and um it's been very inspirational i'm sure she's had a lot of backlash from this um but she's kept her she's kept her truth and she's been true to herself um and she's looked at the evidence as you can see Uh, one thing i really value about robin and she's been a friend of mine for a little while now is that everything she does is very evidence-based and um you know for her to say something she just will not just say it because she feels something she will do her research she will thoroughly investigate and she will, you know, make sure she crosses her T's and dots her I's before she puts anything out there. And, you know, that's um, very true. And so I'm not just saying this because, you know, Robin's written a couple of articles. I've known her for a while, a few years now. And, you know, I've seen the work she's done and I've seen the success she's had with clients. And she knows about health. And, you know, if you. If you want to know about health you know you really have to listen to the people who are helping people get better not the people who are you know just sick care you know um and 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 that's something we you know we really kind of base very strongly is who are the people getting the results who are the people who you know are making sure that they are using the evidence to you know do things that you know, really, the, the medical community thinks it's impossible at the moment. Um, yeah. And um, so, you know, full credit to you. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, it's an honor to, to have you on the, on the program again. And, um, yeah, keep, keep sharing, um, I think. And, um, 
we'll try and do the same as much as we have the capacity to. And um, yeah, yeah it's, you know, we're not trying to undermine, you know, any of this conversation, we're not trying to undermine what's going on or, or say that, you know, that this is not real, this is not what we're trying to say here. What we're saying is the response to this is exaggerated dramat dramatically and it doesn't need to be that way. And we need to look at a different way of doing things and we need to use a targeted approach um, to make sure that the people who are most at risk are safe. And um, we haven't done that, to be honest, as a, as a, as a population, as a community. So um, let's, let's have another look fully, at the evidence. I fully agree with yeah. everything you've said. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, you know, to, to talk to, uh, to your people. And yeah, so I'm, I'm not here to tell you what to do or what not to do. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, if you're in Melbourne and you're in lockdown conditions right now, I'm not here to tell you to break the law. I'm, I, what, what I, what I want to do is just encourage everybody to look at the evidence and that's not what you're seeing on on the six o'clock news right it is so easy these days for people to access the medical literature mm. and i i agree some of the studies are hard to to understand if if you don't have a background in this they use a lot of jargon mm. Um, but the, the, the research is available for you to access and I, I would just encourage everyone to question assumptions, uh, question anything that I've said, go and read the studies. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, include some, mm. some links, Shakur, you might want to put them in the you know, show yeah. notes. I'll, I'll actually share those two articles even on your website about the PCR test yeah. and I think a lot of the, all the references should be in there. That you've kind of used most of them. Most of them. I do have. I do have a couple of new ones. Okay, so I'll, sure. I'll, you send I'll me those. New ones as yep. well. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, and I do encourage you to read those articles. They're impressive. You know, they're really impressive. And thank um, you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I've really, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your posts, and um, you know, keep it up. You know. No, 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 no. I, I, I have, as you can imagine, mm. I, I have had some people sort of kind of losing the plot with with things that I've been sharing. I'm like. Yeah. Uh, well, don't argue with me. Argue with the authors of the study that I just shared because <laughs> that's what I generally do on Facebook. I generally share studies, yeah. you know, in the peer-reviewed medical literature. So, mm -hmm. again, if you want to, if you have an argument with that, better contact the author of the study rather than me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, um, yeah, so thank you guys all for watching the video if you've made it this far. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to watch it. And, um, yeah, you know, if you want more, I'm sure we can organize it. If you have any specific questions, ask them in the comments section, you know. Absolutely. Um, and Happy to answer any questions. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, again, thank you, Robin. And for the rest of you, we'll see you next time. And make sure you eat plants and lots of them. Take care. Lots of plants. <laughs> Bye. Bye.